Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number four, Daniel chapter one, continued. Well, we found out last time that Daniel was deported to Babylon in 605 BC. A consequence of this first attack ordered by Nebuchadnezzar against Jerusalem. Now this was in response to King Jehoiakim of Judah breaking his three-year-old agreement to be a tribute-paying vassal to Babylon. Now Jerusalem wasn't badly damaged. Although the temple was looted for a number of its valuable gold and silver ritual vessels, those items were replaceable. But what was not so easily replaced was the brain power that was drained from the ruling class and then sent to Babylon to serve the Babylonian royal court. Daniel and his cohorts were not made slaves per se. They indeed were taken against their will but they were treated with dignity and respect and they were offered prestigious positions within the Babylonian government. Some of this had to do with the fact that they were Judean nobility. Some might even have been part of the royal family, but not so close as to be eligible to rule over Judah. Now while there were more than these four youths taken to Babylon, Our story focuses only on these four, and the primary interest is on one in particular, Daniel. Now chapter 1 verse 4 explains that they were especially chosen for their intelligence, their education, their noble bearing, and their good looks. The first thing that happened to them was that they were sent to school to learn the ways and the language of the Babylonians. They were turned over to a group called the Kazdim, or in English, the Chaldeans, to be taught. Now the term Chaldeans has always presented a bit of a problem for Bible interpreters as there is not a great deal known about them. And it seems that the term Chaldeans meant slightly different things in different eras. Chaldeans first appear in Assyrian records around the 9th century BC and it is referring to a territory that's located south of the city of Babylon. The people of this territory seem to gain more and more influence in the area until by the time of Nebuchadnezzar it appears that the term Chaldean referred to an elite class of people intellectuals, those especially versed in in language, the arts, magic, astrology. To use the New Testament description of them, they were wise men. Now while the general language of the region at that time was Aramaic, it seems nearly certain that the elite of the Chaldeans spoke Akkadian. And we see this phenomenon in many Middle Eastern cultures where the language of the common folks is different from the language of the most learned in their society. In Yeshua's day, Aramaic was the language of the bulk of the common working class. 
while the most worldly Jews, those they call the Hellenists, spoke Greek. And the priests and the Levites and the Jewish aristocrats conversed mainly in Hebrew. But it's not as though these different segments of society couldn't communicate. In point of fact, nearly everyone was multilingual to one degree or another, and all these languages operated simultaneously side by side. So when Daniel and his comrades were sent to the Chaldean school, they would have learned both Akkadian and Aramaic. The languages had similarities, both used cuneiform alphabets, but there was another point to sending them to school. They were to learn the ways of the Babylonians, including about their gods and their religion and their magic. So, let's pick up now at Daniel chapter 1, verse 5, and this matter involving food. Daniel chapter 1, verse 5. We'll begin there. Page 1098, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. The king assigned them a daily portion of his own food and the wine he drank, and they were to be cared for in this way for three years. At the end of this time, they were to become the king's attendants. And among these, from the people of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officer gave them other names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belshazzar. To Hanya, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Avednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine he drank, so he asked the chief officer to be excused from defiling himself. God caused the chief officer to be kind and sympathetic towards Daniel. However, the chief officer said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king. After all, he's given you an allowance of food and drink. So, if he were to see you boys looking worse than the others of your age, you'd be putting my own head in danger from the king. And then Daniel said to the guard whom the chief officer had put in charge of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please try an experiment on your servants. For ten days, have them give us only vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then see how we look. Compare us with how the boys who eat the king's food look, and then deal with your servants according to what you see. Well, at the end of ten days, they look better, more robust than all the boys who were eating the king's food. So the guard took away their food and the wine they were supposed to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, to these four boys, God had given knowledge and skill in every aspect of learning and wisdom. Moreover, Daniel could understand all kinds of visions and dreams. And when the time the king had set for them to be presented came, the chief officer presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And when the king spoke with them, none was found among all of them to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And in all matters requiring wisdom and understanding, whenever the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and exorcists in his entire kingdom. So Daniel remained there until the first year of King Koresh. Well, verse 5 explains 
that these Jewish youth were to be fed from the king's table. Now that did not mean that they dined with King Nebuchadnezzar. Rather, it means they ate food from the royal pantry, which of course was the best food in the land, the best of the best. It means that the food was provided for them, it was prepared, it was served to them as would be served to an aristocrat. And we're told that the period of their education was to be for three years. Now, Assyriologists are convinced that this mention of three years of of, uh, education indicates a form of organized institutional higher education and that essentially a student got a three-year degree upon graduation. So this wasn't some special arrangement for only these Jewish immigrants. We read of this same thing concerning an education system in later Persian documents and naturally only the most privileged and noble were given access to this kind of a valuable education. Well, verses 6 and 7 give us the names of these Jewish youths and then we're told that the man in charge of them assigned them new names. Now let's get the preliminaries out of the way by explaining the meaning of their Hebrew names. Daniel, El, God, has judged. Hananiah, Yah, God is gracious. Mishael means who is as God is. And finally, Azariah means God has helped. Now notice how each one of these Hebrew names invokes their Hebrew God in some way. It was the prerogative and it was a standard practice of conquering kings to change the names of their vassal kings and those who they captured and used near them in the royal court. The idea was partly that their old life and status had terminated. And so with a new life and a new status come a new name to symbolize it. Daniel's new name was Belteshazzar. There's no consensus on its meaning. Some scholars believe it comes directly from an Akkadian phrase that means protect his life. Others think that because the god Bel was an important god of the Babylonians, that it might have been intended to to make some connection in that way, but it's not for sure. Hananiah's new name was Shadrach. I found so many differing suppositions on the meaning of his name, it's not even worth discussing. (laughs) Mishael's new name was Meshach, which is probably from an Akkadian word that means, I am slighted. And finally, Azaria's name was changed to Avednego. Now, scholarly consensus here is that Nego is a copyist error. And, But since all translations from one language to another depend on how a word sounds when it's spoken, then since in Aramaic, nego and nebo sound so similar that it's not so much of an error as it's just another way of vocalizing the same word. Nebo was a high Babylonian deity. If the consensus is correct then it probably means a servant of Nebo. And that makes sense. But now as we get to verse 8, 
the deeper reason for the name changes begins to reveal itself, which is why we took a moment to see what these Babylonian names might have meant. We were told earlier that the king ordered that these Jewish youth be fed from the king's own food supply. But Daniel decided he could not accept this because it would have meant defiling himself. Why? Because the food being offered would not have been compatible with Torah law. It would have been ritually, it would not have been ritually clean. So here we see Daniel emerge as the leader of the group because he steps forward to establish that he'll not give up his holiness to comply even with the orders of the king. Now no doubt Daniel sees this as a divine test of his faithfulness. The issue was not necessarily that the preparation of the food would not have met Levitical standards as it was that the meat would have been unclean due at least to a portion of it having been sacrificed to the Babylonian idols. That was common practice. Now let me pause for a brief detour to explain a common misconception about the laws of Kashrut, the Torah dietary rules, that frankly even much of the Jewish community is unaware. See, there are two distinct sets of Torah laws that deal with food. One set deals with what is considered permissible. The other set deals with the proper handling of the permissible foods. The first set is all about defining what is to be considered as food. And the second set then explains what can contaminate these otherwise permissible foods, thereby rendering them unclean and therefore ritually inedible. Technically, the terms clean and unclean have nothing to do with the listing of which items can be considered as food. That falls under the classification of permissible and prohibited. Rather, clean and unclean are only about the handling of food that if done properly can render a perfect, uh, rather done improperly, it can render a perfectly permissible food as ritually unclean. So, and this is key for understanding the issue of food, especially in the New Testament. From Leviticus onward, after the food laws are given to Moses, the term food is only referring to permissible food. Because if something otherwise edible is prohibited, it's not food. Our Western minds think about categorizing food items more as edible versus inedible. That is, things that will not harm us and may supply some level of nutrition are called edible. Things that would cause us to be harmed or maybe even die 
if we ingest them, are called inedible. Thus, while a lot of insects and worms and reptiles and some plants that taste disgusting are indeed edible by humans from a purely scientific and medical standpoint, from a biblical standpoint, they don't qualify as food. And humans, especially redeemed humans, ought not to eat them. So remembering that from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is a Hebrew document created in the context of a Hebrew culture, then understand that unless the biblical context specifically calls for a different definition, when God, or a Hebrew, uses the term food, it's only referring to permissible food according to the list given in the Law of Moses. Anything outside that list isn't food. So it's not referred to in the Bible as food. Thus, when we encounter a food issue in the Old Testament or the New Testament, keep that in mind. And since this matter is especially problematic for Christians, consider this example in 1 Corinthians 8, 4-7. through I'll just read it to you. This will sound familiar. So, as for eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that, as you say, an idol has no real existence in this world, and there is only one God. For even if there are so-called gods, either in heaven or earth, as in fact there are gods and lords galore, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things come, for whom we exist, from whom we exist, and one Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, through whom were created all things, and through whom we have our being. But not everyone has this knowledge. Moreover, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat food which has been sacrificed to them, they think of it as really affected by the idol. And their consciences being weak are thus defiled. So, this passage has a number of issues involved in it. First is the use of the term food. And food is defined in the Bible, as something that God has said in the law of Moses is permissible to eat. But because in this case of 1 Corinthians 8, the food had been sacrificed to idols, then this food now becomes ritually unclean. So, for instance, this passage by no means is indicating, say, sacrificing a pig or a horse, or something that's prohibited and thus is fundamentally not food. And just so we don't leave this passage hanging, Paul goes on to explain that since idols have always been nothings, since there are no such things in reality as other gods, then it is certainly not that some silly idol has somehow caused the molecular structure of the meat to literally change? Or is it contaminated like you dropped it in a mud puddle? So that's not why this food becomes unclean. Thus, because the people in question don't have the knowledge of God, the God of Israel, or the laws of Moses and the Torah, 
We're no doubt speaking about Gentiles here, this passage. And the Torah makes it clear that it is not any inherent physical aspect of an edible item that is at the root of God's food choices. Rather, it's simply the Lord's sovereign decision. The conclusion is that to not eat food sacrificed to idols is strictly a matter of obedience and faith to the God of Israel. It's not an issue of a magical spell cast over the meat or some physical transformation within the meat. Thus these Gentiles in this New Testament passage who sacrifice their meat to idols before they eat it really believing that these idols have some physical, tangible effect on that meat, for them, it's not that their food somehow becomes physically defiled since these idols don't have any power anyway. Rather, it's that their consciences become defiled, ritually unclean, before God, because their intent is wrong. The issues of clean and unclean, prohibited and permitted, are spiritual issues. They always have been. They're just being played out in a physical world. So armed with that understanding, we now come back to Daniel and see that for Daniel, this problem that he had with eating the king's food was an issue of proper obedience to the Torah law of not eating food that had become ritually defiled. Because from a physical standpoint, it was otherwise perfectly edible and nutritious. So, in what is described as a humble attitude showing respect, Daniel asks if he might be excused from eating the king's food so that he is not ritually defiled. Interestingly, the chief officer, a Babylonian, was not insulted by this. He was actually quite sympathetic. But he was also afraid that if Daniel didn't partake of the food that was so graciously allotted to him by the king, that he'd get in trouble. And the main proof to the king as to whether the youths were getting the proper food was how they looked. So Daniel turns to a subordinate of Ashpenaz, the the chief eunuch, and he asks him to just try a relatively short experiment to prove that the king would be none the wiser if Daniel was granted his request. Because outwardly, they'd look just fine. And by the way, although the complete Jewish Bible says it was the guard whom Daniel spoke to, the Hebrew word is Melzar. And very likely, this is a proper name and doesn't have a generic meaning like guard or or steward. That is, Daniel spoke to a fellow named Melzar. And he asked Melzar if if they could just eat differently. So, the bargain was that Daniel and his three friends would eat only vegetables, which except under the most radical circumstances, don't get defiled, and then drink only water. Well, why can't they drink the king's wine? Wine's kosher. No one really has a provable answer to that. Except that perhaps the wine used by the Babylonian royalty was a much higher alcohol content than Hebrew table wine. And it is 
If that's the case, a wine with too high of an alcohol content is called in the Bible old wine or shikar. And it's fermented with the express purpose to get you drunk as quickly as possible. But that's just speculation and opinion. Well, the testing period was to be for 10 days. And then Melzar could determine if the Jewish ewes looked okay so he wouldn't get in trouble. And of course, at the end of 10 days, the young men looked better than the others who ate the king's food and drank his wine. So, Melzar agreed to continue with the dietary program. A point I'd like to make here is this. From a nutrition or a food safety aspect, there wasn't a thing in the world wrong with the food that the king provided for the Jewish youth. It was first rate. And no doubt, it was probably permissible under Torah law. And for you vegetarians, don't think that this vegan diet we see Daniel and his buddies eating was somehow causing them to look better. This was a spiritual issue. I've said it over and over again. The laws of Moses aren't and have never been salvation issues. The laws of Moses did not redeem Israel to start with. And with some exceptions, they didn't maintain Israel's redemption when obeyed. And for believers, there's only one thing that redeems us. Our trust in Lord Yeshua. And scrupulously obeying God's commandments is not the determining factor, with some exceptions, in maintaining our relationship and our membership in the kingdom of God. Daniel and his friends would not have become unredeemed had they eaten the king's defiled food. But they would have become ritually unclean. Now the issue I'm highlighting here is a determination to be obedient to the Lord's commandments is a proper response to God's free gift of redemption and relationship. However, if one's determination is to intentionally and habitually trespass against God's commandments, this may well indicate a fundamental lack of trust or faith in God. And a lack of faith or trust indeed puts one's redemption in doubt since trust and faith are the core requirements for redemption. Now Daniel and his friends knew God's laws well. But now that they were up in Babylon, would they strive to obey those dietary laws even in a foreign place under challenging circumstances? Would they continue to be a good witness for Jehovah in a pagan place by steadfastly remaining obedient? Or would they go along with the crowd and employ the motto, when in Rome. Daniel passed the divine test. The Lord favored Daniel and his his three friends, not only with sustained health on such a limited diet, but they actually fared better than those who ate the full menu. This was not a natural result of eating only vegetables and water. It was a supernatural blessing by God. And it no doubt made a favorable impression on both 
Melzar and his boss, Ashpenaz. Now if I can ask for your full attention. It's important to understand that the bottom line of Nebuchadnezzar taking these Jewish Jews from Judah, offering them prestigious positions in his government, giving them new Babylonian names, sending them to a three-year program of the best higher education available, and of offering only the best Babylonian foods from the king's own table, was to fundamentally change Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's identities. They were brought to him as intelligent, faithful Jews. And he wanted them to become loyal, useful Babylonians. The intent was to separate them from their heritage, their nation, and their faith. The intent was to separate them from their heritage, their nation, and their faith. The goal was to have them in time think differently than when they first arrived. And the primary ingredients needed to facilitate this new identity were location, name, education, and diet. And notice that of these four ingredients on the path to identity change, the one that's given the most attention in this story was diet. This is not by accident. And as I try to remind Gentile Christians whenever the opportunity arises, when Adam and Eve were created, they had no known rules given to them save for one. They essentially had a Torah that consisted of one commandment. You recall what that one commandment was? Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Adonai God took the person and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and care for it. Adonai God gave the person this order. You may eat freely from every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You are not to eat from it because on the day you eat from it, it will become certain that you will die. In a pristine world that was perfect at that moment, completely free of sin, there was given to the first couple a divine commandment that as illogical as it might seem to our modern scientific systematic theology based Christianity was about diet. Hmm. Yes, the very first law ever given to mankind long before Abraham, Isaac, or Israel was about food. They could eat anything. Anything they chose in that garden. No restrictions except for one particular fruit from one particular tree. 
The result of eating that fruit, as both Jews and Christians fully agree and accept, was not that Adam and Eve were poisoned. The fruit was obviously not only edible, the Bible says it was delicious. The result of breaking that dietary law was the emergence of sin itself. And the result of sin is death. Physical death. Spiritual death. Obedience to God and the resultant spiritual blessing. Or disobedience to God and the resultant spiritual curse. This is the God principle that's being demonstrated with Adam and Eve and with the kosher dietary laws of the Torah. Now for those who have ears, I pray you hear. I pray you Shema. Now verse 17 of Daniel chapter 1 continues that these four boys have been given tremendous spiritual gifts. However, division is drawn and an emphasis is created. Daniel, unlike his three friends and apparently unlike any of the other unnamed Jewish youth taken up to Babylon, he was given the gifts of understanding dreams and visions. And let's be clear about what is meant about the type of learning and wisdom that all four were given special gifts for. It was any type. These boys would have had great ability to learn and to digest the Babylonian languages, magic arts, God systems. But with wisdom, they could also discern what was true, what was false. All of these boys would become expert in the ways of the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. But that doesn't mean that they subscribed to their efficacy or to their societal morality. Daniel especially would rise in knowledge of the Babylonian system above above even the best of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian brain trust. And this isn't the first time we've heard about such a thing like this. Listen to Acts 7.22. So Moses was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he became a powerful speaker and a man of action. But in the end, see, this knowledge was used by Moses and soon by Daniel for a godly purpose as directed by God. Or as C.F. Keel so eloquently put it, such acquisition of heathen knowledge was arranged so as to put to shame the wisdom of this world by the hidden wisdom of God. Thus, after the three years of training, Ashpenaz presented Daniel and his three comrades to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king carefully interviewed them. He was so impressed by what he saw and what he heard that among all the Jewish youths he had commandeered and had trained in Babylonian ways, these four were superior in every manner. No doubt the king gave them difficult problems to solve and ponder and their acute degree of discernment in these matters set them apart from everybody else. Now this chapter ends with the notice that Daniel continued until the first year of King Korish. Now, I told you, I point out places that Bible scholars of the Bible Criticism School latch on to as evidence that Daniel's a fraud. 
And this is one of them. King Koresh is also known as the Persian King Cyrus. So we have Daniel serving the Babylonian kings as long as Babylon remained the regional power and then serving the Persian kings when they took over the Babylonian Empire. However, in Daniel chapter 10, we read this. First verse. In the third year of Koresh, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, also called Belshazzar. The word was certain, a great war. And he understood the word, having gained understanding in the vision. So, the Bible critics say, oh, this is a discrepancy. Because in chapter 1, verse 21, Daniel says he served until the first year of King Koresh. But in chapter 10, verse 1, we have Daniel serving Koresh in Koresh's third year. And they say, the meaning of verse 1 is that Daniel served Koresh only in Koresh's first year. So the fictitious author of Daniel has revealed himself as a poor historian. This is a classic red herring. And it's what happens when one tries to reduce the Bible to science and wants to examine it to the subatomic level. <laughs> First of all, without any needed explanation, up until the modern, the, the era of modern critics, it was generally understood by church leaders that all that chapter 1 verse 21 is saying is that Daniel continued serving as an advisor even when the empire changed hands from the Babylonians to the Persians. Trying to parse the single word until, which is odd in Hebrew, to mean that the first year of King Koresh was the terminating year of Daniel's service. However, as the Brown Briggs driver lexicon explains, while odd can mean up until, it can equally mean while, as in the sense of during. So it's flexible, it's not a definite term. So one legitimate meaning is that Daniel served there during the first year of King Koresh. And as the book of Daniel continues, the additional information of chapter 10 verse 1 then describes a time when Daniel is still with Koresh in Koresh's third year, and it shows that the proper use of ad, Hebrew word ad, in this context is while or during, not up until. And yet the Bible critics want to say that chapter 10 verse 1 doesn't provide context, it provides contradiction. This is a good reminder of what challenges a modern Bible student faces when you're trying to honestly and openly study God's Word. Because the bulk of scholarship for over a century that has influenced nearly every Christian denomination and much of the Jewish world as well has set about trying to prove that the Bible, while a good book, is nonetheless not a divine book. And that Christ while a good man is nonetheless not a divine man nor the son of God we'll begin the fascinating Daniel chapter 2 next time when Nebuchadnezzar has a frightening series of dreams